0: Welcome to the Exploring Economic Freedom Lecture Series. Our speakers today are Dr. Robert Hicks and Dr. Stephen Orbitz. They will explore the myths and realities of a current economic crisis. Let me introduce you to each one of them. After Dr. Orbitz will talk, take a few questions, Dr. Hicks will talk, take a few questions, and after both of them will take questions from the audience. I would like to remind everybody this is an academic Event, and therefore we are here for scholarly discussions and therefore we are here to ask questions, how to make statements or critical statements. Dr. Horvitz is a Charles A. Dana Professor of Economics at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. He is also an affiliated senior scholar with the Merkel Center at George Mason University. Dr. Orwitz earned his PhD in economics at George Mason University. is the author of two books, Monetary Evolution, Free Banking, and an Economic Order, published in 1992 at Westview Press, and he's is also the author of Micro Foundations and Microeconomics An Austrian Perspective, published in 2000 for Routledge. He has published 50 peer-reviewed articles, has written over 30 chapters for edited volumes, He's also a regular contributor to the Freeman and Critical Review. And he's uh, he's a regular lecturer at the Institute for Human Studies and Foundation for Economic Education. And he's also a regular contributor to the Institute for Human Studies' newly developed education program called LearnLiberty.org. Dr. Hicks is a senior fellow in political economy for the Independent Institute. An editor of the Institute Quarterly Journal, The Independent Review. For you students, there is a bunch of free copies available at the door. You can pick them. They are free. So it's a free lunch. <laughs> mm. And there's free pizza. <laughs> he received his PhD in economics from John Hopkins University. He has taught at University of Washington, Lafayette College, Seattle University, and the University of economics in Prague. He is the recipient of numerous awards and is the author of The Depression, War, and Cold War, Against Leviathan, The Transformation of the American Economy from 1865 to 1914, and Crisis and Leviathan. He has also been the author of more than 100 articles and reviews in academic journals. Please welcome Dr. Orwitz and Dr. Higgs. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Alex, and thank you all for coming out. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. You'll have to bear with me a little bit. I have something of a cold, and hopefully, uh, that won't get in the way too much. Um, What I want to do This afternoon, I guess, still this morning, technically, is to talk about the causes of the Great Recession. All right, and notice I've dated this 2008 to 2009. One could still argue. One could argue. I maybe should have put a question mark there instead of the 09. By some measures, we are, I think, still still in a recession. Um, But what I want to look focus on is why. How did we get into this mess that we're in? and what uh, Professor Higgs, Dr. Higgs is going to do when I'm done is to talk about the issues involved in how we might or might not get out of this mess that we're in. So my focus is again on the causes. How did we get here um, and, and why? And in particular my focus is to use um, the tools of the Austrian School of Economics uh, not exclusively here but importantly centrally in my argument to show the ways in which the particular theory of the business cycle that the Austrians have is is very helpful in understanding important parts of why and how we got we got to where we are. So, uh, so that's what that's what uh, what I want to do. Okay, and you can kind of think about this in maybe three or four different parts. Uh, I'm going to talk again about uh, the Austrian theory of the business cycle and, and, and how that uh, helps un- us understand kind of how we got into this mess. I also want to talk some about government intervention in the housing market that caused that cycle and this boom and then the bust that followed it to happen in a particular way. I want to say a few words about deregulation, and why, why that wasn't a problem, and at the very end I want to say one quick thing about the issue of how we have or have not got got out of this mess. So uh, let me start uh, by raising two questions. In public, of popular discussions of the recession, you often hear people say, the reason we got into the housing boom and then the the crisis, the financial crisis and the recession, is because of either or both irrationality on the part of actors, on the part of investors in particular, or greed on the part of investors and other economic actors. And these are two sort of things you you hear out there in the the conversation in in a whole bunch of different ways. And I think there's an important question underlying those responses, which is, one of the things that any theory of recessions has to explain is why everybody makes the same kind of mistake at the same time. Right? In a way, that's what recessions are. Recessions reveal to us that lots of people's expectations were systematically incorrect. That a lot of people thought the future was going to be one way. It turns out it wasn't. Their expectations are disappointed. We find ourselves in a recession. So the question is... How, right? How can it be that everyone makes the same mistake at the same time? And these are two possible explanations, right? That people are either irrational or they're they're, they're greedy. But one thing I'd say off the top, if you really think that that's the cause, right, it might be the case that you should be studying psychology instead of economics, right? If we want an economic explanation, we need to go beneath people's sort of predispositions and look at the economic variables in play. But I want to raise a more important point first. Suppose this morning while we're in, we're going to be in here for a couple hours, right, listening to these two talks. And suppose when we get out, we discover that in downtown Denver, there were 2,000 automobile accidents, in the 2 hours that we were in here. And let's assume for the moment the snow stops, so it's and even if it was snowing, I don't think we'd see 2000 automobile accidents. But think about it for a minute. What if we got out and discovered there were 2000 automobile accidents in Denver in the 2 hours we were in here? What would be our first guess as to why that could be? Right? I mean, you could say, well, maybe Denver drivers just went psycho, right? They all went or got extremely irrational and just started ramming cars into one another, all right? I don't think that's a very satisfying explanation. It would be what would cause them all to sort of lose their mind? at the same time alright what would be a more likely reason barring the snow so what about the street if they stopped ok if they stop working though if, let's say they stop working what would people do when they came to an intersection They'd likely treat it as a four-way stop. And we have, by the way, a lot of evidence from that in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina when lots of streetlights were out in New Orleans and other places. People treated them as four-way stops. It's but you're on the right track. It's not so much that they're not working, but what if they're all green? Right? What if all the lights are green? Both ways, right? So when you approach the intersection, right, you see the green light, and your expectation is green light means go. Not only that green light means go, green light means. Cross traffic, stop. (laughs) That's the important expectation, right? And so if you see, if every light in downtown Denver turned green for some period of time, it wouldn't surprise us at all that people would get into all kinds of automobile accidents. But the question is, would we then say drivers were irrational? I'm not sure we would, right? What they're doing is responding rationally to an irrational signal, right? It's not irrational to see a green light and go. That's what we do all the time. Right? The problem is the underlying signal isn't working correctly. What I'm going to argue in a little bit is that this is exactly what happened during the course of sort of 2001 to 2007 or 8. We had economic, the equivalent of economic traffic lights flashing green both ways, leading actors to make rational decisions—decisions decisions that looked to them as rational—but that, when given these bad signals, added up to a boom and then a bust. So blaming irrationality, we don't need irrationality to get people doing stupid things. Bad signals, the things we rely on to make decisions, if they're not working right, people can, even rational people, can make what turn out to be after the fact really poor decisions. So what about greed? Well, as as a friend of mine likes to say, look, blaming greed for a recession is like blaming gravity for airplane crashes. Okay? It's, it's true in some sense, right? But, you know, the plane falls out of the sky. Yeah, that's gravity. But gravity's omnipresent, right? Gravity's always there. If we discovered while we were in here that five planes crashed in the United States, you know, all in the two hours we were in here, I don't think we'd go, "Oh, gravity must be really heavy today or something like that, right? right? We would be looking for some other explanation. We would be wondering, was it terrorism? Was there some mechanical... Fl- I mean, what, what happened? Was it weather, right? Greed or gravity, doesn't do the trick because it's always there. You, you would have to come up with some explanation why suddenly, for that period of 2001 to 2007, people got extra super greedy, right? Um, why, and why, why would that be? Well, people are always, in some sense, self-interested. The interesting question for economists is, what are the circumstances under which that self-interest, perhaps acting on these faulty signals can lead us to make these kinds of systematic mistakes. So that's really the question that that we want to try to ask and answer when we think about what can cause this sort of boom that we had over the course of 2001 to 2007 and then the recession that we find ourselves in. So to, to answer that question we need to detour a little bit into economic theory and we need to talk about how uh, business cycles might work and what money does and, and these sorts of things. And hopefully this uh, little detour won't take us too long and then we can kind of come back to the story of what happened that led up to this, to this recession. So I want to talk a bit about the Austrian theory of the business cycle. Um, some of you may know these two guys. That's uh, Ludwig von Mises uh, and F.A. Hayek. Hayek won the Nobel Prize in uh, 1974. It is their work in the early 20th century that really uh, solidified this particular theory of the business cycle. It's worth noting that this theory of the business cycle was the dominant story of how recessions and depressions occurred in the 1920s and 30s before the rise of Keynesian economics, right? It was in in the 30s, the battle, now immortalized in two songs and videos, was between Hayek and Keynes, right? That That was the battle of ideas, and for Keynesian economics to have triumphed the way it did, it had to somehow... Uh, convince people that this theory and versions of this theory uh, were were not were not correct. So, so how do we underst- So, what what are the keys to this theory? Well, one of the keys to this theory uh, is the idea that uh, our ideas that money is the medium of exchange and time is the medium of production. Okay, that what. What we call macroeconomics is about is understanding these two things. All exchanges, or pretty much all exchanges in a market economy, take place using money. Money touches everything in a market economy. Right? And you can think, the analogy here perhaps might be between money and blood in the human body. If you've ever had a blood disease like mono, don't raise your hand, right? if you've ever had a blood disease like that, you know what it does to you. It makes your whole body right? Slow down, okay? You can't say my arm hurts, my leg hurts. Your entire system doesn't work right if you've got some blood disorder or an immune, often immune system disorder too, okay? And money's like that. If money's working well, people make exchanges, economies function, right? Everything's fine. But if there's something wrong with money, right? If there's too much or too little money, as it turns out, that that interferes with this process. When there's too little money, people can't effectively make exchanges. When there's too much, as we'll see in a minute, Right, those exchanges get distorted in particular kinds of ways that can lead to this boom and bust cycle. So money is the medium of exchange. Money is pervasive. It touches everything in a, in a market economy. Production, on the other hand, takes time. All production takes time, right? You can't just snap your fingers and make something appear it takes time. So when entrepreneurs are thinking about what do we need to produce for the future they're always thinking ahead. They're thinking whatever I decide to do today has to be something I think people will want down the road. And they have to ask themselves do people want things in the near future or in the longer run future? Those time relevant decisions are among the most important that entrepreneurs have to make. They have to figure out what do people want. Do people want things relatively sooner or relatively later. And so production takes time and entrepreneurs need to account for that when they think about what to do. So if we think for a minute, alright we have money, we have time. Where, to do, where do, the, do these two things intersect in the economy? What's the key place, the key variable that reflects both money and time? And the answer to that question is interest rates. Okay? Interest rates are where money and time come together. And the way to think about this is an interest rate, of course, signals us about people's willingness uh, to save or lend, people's willingness to be patient or impatient. High interest rates signal that people don't want to wait, right? Because if the interest rate is high, you have to pay people a lot of money to compensate them for getting something later in the future. When interest rates are low, people are saying, yeah, I don't need that much. I'll just, a little compensation will do if you want me to wait, okay? So interest rates are are a signal here about what we call people's time preferences, But we can't borrow and lend time, right? There's, you know, it it doesn't exist in a physical form. When we borrow and lend and we save and spend, that's what we're doing, right? Lenders are people who are sort of giving up time. Borrowers are people who want time, right? Who want to bring things closer to the future. So if we can't do it through time, how do we do it? Well, we do it through money, right? Money is the way in which we trade time, credit to be more specific, right? When banks lend, they are giving you time in the form of money. And so interest rates are key for for this Austrian story because it's interest rates that enable us to engage or enable entrepreneurs and consumers to engage in intertemporal coordination, right? There's your your, uh, bit of jargon for the day, right? And what do we mean by intertemporal coordination? Again, what we mean by that is producers correctly anticipating the willingness of consumers to wait. Do, do they want it farther in the future or more relatively closer in the future? All right. Entrepreneurs rely on interest rates to, as signals about how to do that and engage in their, their production plans accordingly. And if the interest rate is correct, it signals accurately to entrepreneurs what they need to do. If it's not correct, entrepreneurs will have a false impression of what it is that consumers want. What the Austrians argued is, is that If you get money right, okay, and if the monetary system and the monetary authority are doing their job correctly, interest rates will, in fact, the interest rates people see in the marketplace, will reflect those time preferences and will accurately signal to others people's willingness to wait or not. But central banks have the power to distort interest rates. When central banks don't get the money supply right, interest rates lose their effectiveness as an accurate signal about people's preferences. In particular, central banks are prone to inflate, right? Why are central bank, banks prone to inflate? Well, a couple of reasons, but the most obvious being if you, inflation okay, uh, re- reduces the burden facing debtors, right? If you inflate, okay, you reduce the, the real value of the dollars people owe someone else. And so inflation eases the burden on people who've borrowed and paying back their loans. Well, who's the biggest borrowers? Governments, right? They're hugely in debt. Inflation is a way for governments to reduce their debt burden. So if, if central banks are going to err, and remember central banks are part of governments to one degree or another, if they're going to err, they're going to err on the side of inflation, because that is, particularly if they're tied closely with governments, because that eases the burden of that debt. If central banks inflate, what happens is they create this excess credit that lines up in banks' coffers and their reserves. Banks have more to lend out. And if banks are going to lend out, they can do that by lowering their interest rates, right? So banks start lending more at these lower rates. Entrepreneurs start borrowing more. Entrepreneurs see these lower interest rates, right? Seeing those lower interest rates, they say to themselves, okay, low interest rate means that people want to wait more. They're more patient. They're more willing to wait in the long run. And entrepreneurs think, We'll borrow, and what we'll do is we'll borrow for longer-term projects, projects that take more time to come to fruition. And the good thing about that is the more time entrepreneurs can take, the more productive those things can be. So entrepreneurs are okay, we'll take more time and we'll generate something more productive, but that's cool because consumers have said to us, right, lower interest rate, that they're willing to wait. The problem, of course, is that this interest rate is not telling the truth. It's all the traffic lights are green, That interest rate is signaling falsely to entrepreneurs that people want to wait more. Remember, the reason the interest rate is low is not because consumers save more. If that were the case, then we'd be fine. But because the central bank has artificially expanded the supply of credit. And so what happens is that these artificially low interest rates lead to what the Austrians called malinvestment in long-term projects. That entrepreneurs invest too much in projects that take Long periods of time to uh, unfold. And too much in what we call the early stages. Too much in the early R&D that, that a long-term project takes. So resources are diverted into these things and diverted away from, in relative terms, consumer goods. And this is a problem. Consumers don't want this. Consumers still want the same sort of proportions that they wanted before, but entrepreneurs have, misre- have, have seen a signal that has misled them to think that consumers are more willing to wait. So something's got to give here, okay? This, isn't go- this is not, to use a fashionable word these days, this is not sustainable, all right? If you want to think about it this way, it's like taking a piece of taffy and pulling it both ends, right? At one end, the entrepreneurs are pulling because they want to invest in R&D and these long-term projects, but consumers are pulling it together and saying, no, 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 we don't want that. We want what we've always wanted, which is this relatively more stuff here. They both pull, eventually the taffy's got to break. It's not... Pulling taffy at both ends is not sustainable, okay? And so what we see here at first, when this is happening, it looks like a boom, right? Entrepreneurs are borrowing. They're engaging in new longer-term projects. They're investing in, these, in, in all these different kinds of things that are early on in those projects. They're hiring workers to work on those projects, right? All these sorts of things make it look like there is a boom, that the economy is growing. But it's a false signal. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a misleading signal. In fact, this growth is artificial. It's unsustainable. Okay? We, can, we cannot keep it going. Eventually what happens is that entrepreneurs discover that there just isn't enough real savings to support these projects they've begun. And so eventually costs begin to rise and entrepreneurs begin to realize it won't be profitable to finish these projects. As a result, they stop. They abandon those projects. They uh, start reducing their demand for labor, people become unemployed, the economy turns and we head into the bust. Right? That point at which, which entrepreneurs realize in essence they've been fooled. Okay? What's interesting about this theory is that it's during the boom where the mistakes are made. Right? In our heads we tend to think of recessions as being the bad thing. But in this theory, the bad thing is the boom. It's the boom where people are led to malinvest and to engage in activity that ultimately isn't sustainable. The bad signal from interest rate, the interest rate leads to mismatched expectations, and those mismatched expectations eventually reveal themselves, okay? Uh, and when they reveal themselves, that's when we turn, we turn into the bust, okay? And ironically, the, just continuing, it's during the bust, it's during the recession when mistakes are corrected, what, we are, what we've been trying to do for the last three years, right, is fix the mistakes of the six or seven years before by getting rid of the malinvestments that we made here, by re- reallocating resources to new and, and more valuable uses. For reasons that Bob may talk about, we've not been able to do that very effectively. But that's what we're trying to do. It's during the bust when the mistakes are corrected. Last thing to think about, if you want an analogy for this, it's not perfect, but the analogy I sometimes use with my students is, is that this is like going out drinking okay? in the following way. all right, if you, wait, if you go out and drink too much and you wake up the next morning and you don't feel well, you don't say to yourself when you wake up, oh, I must have done something really stupid this morning to feel so sick. Right? You say to yourself, I must have done something really stupid last night to feel so sick this morning. Okay? It's during the boom, it's when you're out drinking and feeling good that you're, quote, making the mistakes that will eventually lead you to feel worse the next morning. And it's the next morning when you try to correct those mistakes by, we won't be too graphic, but by getting the toxin out of your body in whatever way, whatever way uh, it, it decides to come out. So the bust is when the mistakes are corrected. All right? So that's the, that's the Austrian story. So how does this apply to what we've been through the last few years? Well, the first thing we need to show is that we actually had uh, interest rates that, were, that we would think would be too low. So the first uh, graph I'm going to show you here, I don't know how well you can see this in the back, but trust me for a moment. This is the uh, uh, federal funds rate, okay?, uh, th- and this is, the, this is the nominal federal funds rate. This is the interest rate that banks charge each other on loans, all right? This is usually taken as a measure of how loose monetary policy is. If banks have lots to lend out and therefore the Fed funds rate is low, it suggests that the Fed's creating lots of reserves for them to lend out. Well, as you can see here, from about 2003 to about 2005, that federal funds rate was below 2%, right? Sort of this this period right there. So for about two and a half years, right, we had a federal funds rate below two percent, which historically is quite low, okay? And you can see the big drop here, and this was uh, after September 11th, and the concerns about, about, even before that, about Y2K. Stayed low for a while, and then started to come back up again. That's the nominal Fed funds, right? That's the actual sort of rate banks were charging each other, but if you look at the real Fed funds rate, that is this nominal rate minus the rate of inflation, what was the real cost of borrowing? Here's where it gets really creepy. Now this only goes up to 2009, okay, but if you look at that same period from about 2002 to 2005 or six, what do you notice? The real Fed funds rate was below zero. In other words, right, instead of having to pay a price to borrow, people were getting paid to borrow. Interest rates were so low, right, and inflation was so high that you could, in essence, make money by borrowing it. It's a little, that's you know, perhaps slightly overstated, okay, but this suggests that interest rates were extraordinarily low in real terms, making it very, very profitable for firms to borrow and to invest in the kinds of long-term investments uh, that, that, that I was talking about earlier. So this suggests that what we saw, and again, there's there's controversy about this, but this suggests that what we saw during this period, during the first decade of the of the century, was in fact a, an Austrian-style boom with interest rates being held uh, artificially low. Okay, so that's suggestive that this theory has some explanatory power. But what I want to note is it's not uh, it's not the only thing in play here, because one of the things we know that happened during the boom was that that boom was felt particularly during, in, in the housing market. Okay? One of the things we did see, for example, during the Bush presidency was high rates of inflation. Even though perhaps the Fed was expanding credit and making it available very cheap, we didn't see inflation. Well, why not? Well, one reason is, is that where much of that credit went was into the housing market. And for reasons we can talk about in the Q&A, the traditional measures of price inflation don't count housing prices, the asset value of houses, uh, as part of that, that price level index. So the price level indexes didn't look like there was much inflation, but we certainly saw asset inflation in terms of housing prices. So why? Why the housing market, right? Why did this particular crisis have this particular feature to it? Well, the easy answer is government policies made housing artificially attractive. Understand, of course, that housing is a very interest-sensitive asset. When people are thinking about buying a house, interest rates matter a great deal, all right. And government policies made housing uh, uh, even more attractive, as uh, artificially attractive as an investment than the low interest rates themselves, by themselves did. So how was that? What were the things that were going on here? Well, uh, a huge part of this was the secondary mortgage mar- market and the roles of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, all right. And what's important here is that um, the way mortgage and housing markets were organized was that mortgage brokers would sell people mortgages and turn around and sell those off to these government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Important to note, these are not private corporations in the usual sense of the word. They were created by government. We call them government-sponsored enterprises. And most importantly, they had an implicit promise. that Well, they had special access to the government borrowing. That's one thing. But they had an implicit promise of a bailout. Nobody thought these guys, if they ever got in trouble, they wouldn't get bailed out. And so what mortgage brokers did was say, all right, we'll sell everybody a mortgage. Then we'll sell, we'll sell those off to Fannie and Freddie who'll buy them up. Fannie and Freddie and others would package them together into these mortgage-backed securities. But the key was that Fannie and Freddie were sort of standing there waiting to buy up pretty much any mortgage people originated. So people said, well, it doesn't much matter who we give these mortgages to because we'll originate them, sell them. They're not our problem anymore. Okay. And so you had these... Uh, you had Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as these government-sponsored uh, enterprises artificially distorting the housing market, right, making, or at least the mortgage market more precisely, okay, making it much easier for banks to sell mortgages and others to sell mortgages to marginal borrowers because they knew they could simply get rid of them to Fannie and Freddie. There was also, of course, uh, this push for, uh, push for affordable housing, um, starting really so with at least the Clinton administration, and if you really want to talk about it, it goes back to at least the Great Depression, but at least in, our, in more recent times, okay, um, certainly was an ongoing policy of the federal government to try to make housing more affordable. Okay, And by the way, just as, a, just as a sort of parenthetical thought, it's interesting that government wants to make housing more affordable, but every time housing prices fall, they get all panicky. Wait, what, what? I don't understand. If you want to make housing more affordable, aren't falling home prices a good idea? Good thing? Oh, no, 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 those are terrible. Well, how exactly are you hoping to make housing more affordable then? All right? All right. So what were some of the things that, that government did here? Uh, I got, I've got a whole list um, that I'll kind of cover in brief, and again, we can talk, we can talk more about. It. But certainly one set of things, and not the only set of things, was government policy uh, that was targeting both uh, minority groups and poor groups, you know, lower income groups, to make housing more affordable for, for, for those groups. Okay? For example, Countrywide Mortgage um, Specialized in trying to find ways to, to provide low, uh, low-cost low loans to low-income Hispanic families in California, Arizona, and other kinds of places. Um, those One of the reasons they were doing that is they were under immense congressional pressure, the, the lenders were under immense congressional pressure, to expand Hispanic home ownership. All right? Many of the folks here were given some subprime loans, all right? and this was a classic bit of crony capitalism between countrywide and, and the federal government. It's important, right, that... Three of the places that were hit hardest by the housing crisis, California, Nevada, and Florida, all places with significant Spanish-speaking populations, certainly California and Nevada. Okay? They now have some of the higher, or certainly did a couple years ago, and I think still do, higher foreclosure rates. Okay? So this sort of pressure from the government on firms to do this was part of it. Fannie and Freddie, too, had expectations, congressional mandates that said by 2005, 52% of their financing had to be below, to, to households below median household incomes. Okay? Um, and then they also had government mandates for what, how much they had to loan to households that made less than 60% of median household income. So here, government was saying, you have to lend a certain part of your portfolio to poor households. Okay, So low interest rates, along with these other policies together, push all this credit into the housing market. Here, Community Reinvestment Act, another another part of this story. People tend to point to this as a big problem. I don't think this was a huge problem, but it was certainly one of them, okay? The fact that banks had to make a certain percent, percentage of their loans to uh, poorer and minority households borrowers in their particular geographical region. And again, these were, were often more, uh, more risky, more risky loans. In addition to that, tax policy mattered here, too. We shifted the capital gains tax. We ended the capital gains tax on homes. Now, by itself, I think that's a good thing, okay? Uh, lower taxes in general are better, all right? But by only ending it on one asset, we artificially pushed resources towards that particular, that particular asset. Now, this was the 1997 um, ca- tax reform expanded the capital gains exclusion. Totally, didn't totally get rid of it, but expanded the capital gains exclusion for home sales, uh, just a couple other things that I'll mention quickly. Adjustable rate mortgages become part of this and people trying to flip homes, right? People sort of trying to get in at a low rate, improve the home, housing prices are rising, sell it later, flip it. So lots of people were getting these really bargain basement mortgages and then using them not to live in uh, but, but, to, but to flip. turns out that adjustable rate mortgages were a bigger foreclosure problem than subprimes. Right? And the adjustable mortgage problem was that people bought in at these low rates, then couldn't flip the house, and then got stuck when the mortgage rate, mortgage rate jumped. Okay? Um, that's, and that, that's certainly a problem. And again, what do we mean by affordable housing here? To, another thing. Uh, the ratings agencies that uh, rated these mortgage-backed securities, these financial instruments that were based on these mortgages. One of the problems here that this is an oligopoly. There's only three, or were only three, government agencies that were officially licensed, officially granted the privilege of rating these securities. This was not a competitive market, and so these three rating agencies ended up often not rating for the buyers of mortgages, is what they should be doing, but rating for the sellers. Right And when there was no new firm who could come in and say, "You guys don't know what you're talking about," this, this cartel, right, overrated many of these mortgages. One reason being this market was simply insufficiently competitive to, to ensure that they were pricing or rating those mortgages, those mortgages correctly. Another small story here, the basal uh, accord tax rules. Again, it's complicated, but the short version is this. Suppose you are a bank uh, who issues who you know, sell. Who, gives a mortgage loan to someone in your community. If you keep that mortgage loan on your books, the tax law said you had to hold a certain bit of percentage of capital against that, a fairly high percentage. If you sold that mortgage to someone else, they packaged it with a bunch of other mortgages into a mortgage-backed security, and you bought that mortgage-backed security, which included the very same loan you started with, the amount of capital you had to hold against that mortgage-backed security was substantially less. And so from the bank's perspective, it made sense, given these tax laws, to say, all right, we'll originate these mortgages, we'll sell them off, and then we'll buy them back as part of this package of mortgage-backed securities. And so banks started doing this, and guess what? They found themselves highly leveraged, very low on capital, and when the, when the housing market collapsed and mortgage prices, uh, bank, house prices fell, these mortgage-backed securities collapsed, they didn't have the resources to, to back it up. And finally, what's known as the Greenspan put. Uh, And what the Greenspan said at one point during the 1990s, that the Fed cannot prevent asset bubbles from happening, but it can always cushion the blow when the bubble bursts. And so people said, okay. So when when this housing bubble bursts, you're going to cushion the blow, right? That's what you said. And so certainly one of the things in investors' mind was, well, minds, well, you know, even if this is all built on a house of cards, which it was, again, the Fed will be there to bail us out. By the way, what's happened? The Fed has played a huge role in bailing folks out uh, across the board. So again, Greenspan, you know, or at least Bernanke kept Greenspan's promise. Probably that's the most precise way to put it. All right, so two, two last things, or two or three last things real quick. First, um, some people say deregulation was the problem, all right? We can, again, talk about this in the Q&A, but let me just make two points here. First, from 1980 to 2009, there were four new regulations on the banking and finance industry for every one deregulation. If you look at the, reg, you know, the federal register, it did not shrink. Even the part on banking and finance did not shrink between 1980 or even 2000 and 2009. There were a couple of important deregulations in here. One being the end of the, glass, of, of the depression era Glass-Steagall restrictions. Two things, though. That happened really too late. That was 1999 to really have a major impact on how banks behaved in the early 2000s. But more importantly, when the crisis hit, it was a good thing that we didn't have that law in place because it enabled these failing investment banks to quickly switch over to commercial banks and to, and in, in doing so, help them actually get out of trouble. So that's the only one thing you can point to, but there's no evidence from the research that I've read to suggest that the end of Glass-Steagall had much, had much to do here. And at the same time, there were all these other regulations in place that we're talking about, okay, including the ones having to do with the housing market. And what this little graph points out too, okay, is that these mortgage-backed securities were not coming from private lenders. They were coming mostly from government agencies like Fannie and Freddie. So it wasn't like deregulation suddenly led banks to start creating and issuing these mortgage-backed securities. This was Fannie and Freddie. These were government agencies with with special access to the Treasury and with an implicit promise of bailout that were financing this housing boom. So what did you have here? You had the, the central bank, the Fed, pushing interest rates artificially low encouraging borrowing, the borrowing, instead of as it was in most past business cycles kind of being spread across the economy, gets channeled into the housing market thanks to all these ways in which the government was artificially stimulating demand for housing and mortgages and so forth. The result is you get a housing boom, and on top of that housing boom, you get all these fancy instruments. You get the mortgage-backed securities, right, but then you get the collateral debt obligations and all this other stuff that kind of gets piled on top of it all of which is premised on rising house prices and the fact that if this collapses, there'll be a bailout, which there mostly was. So the, the financial crisis sits on top of the boom created by these artificially low interest rates. That's the real key here. Low, artificially low interest rates, policy, government policy favoring housing, put it together, you get what we saw In 2008, okay, um, the Fed was faced with now what to do when the financial crisis hit. And I want to say one quick word about that. There's a big debate among sort of free market economists about exactly what the Fed should have or should have not done in September of 2008. Some argue the Fed should have done nothing. Others say it should do what central banks are supposed to do, that is, supply liquidity to healthy banks, all right? Whatever that debate, no one in that debate wanted this, Okay. Uh, Nobody in that debate wanted to see, and again, this is from 2008 to 2009, the adjusted monetary base. That's basically the supply of currency and bank reserves doubled in one year. If if I extend this forward to where we are now, I think last I saw close to tripled from where it was before the crisis. The Fed has simply gone wild creating reserves in the name of trying to rescue failed banks and to some degree provide liquidity. But most of it's about Bought, rescuing failed banks by buying up all the crappy assets that are on, their, that are on their, uh, their, their balance sheets. And the Fed has, in doing so, has taken on new powers that it didn't have before, okay, and that arguably are not authorized to. It, it never asked Congress for permission to do this. It just went ahead and did. Um, and is that a problem? Well, we know, and Dr. Higgs's work has shown us pretty convincingly, that government powers acquired during a crisis, in the name of temporarily addressing the crisis, never all go away. And, and the Fed will never go back to where it was before, having acquired these powers. Again, powers that it, it, it abrogated for itself without, um, without congressional or really anyone else's approval. And the danger we face now is really a danger of severe inflation. All that newly created, those newly created funds are sitting in bank reserves like a ticking time bomb. They're not going anywhere right now for a variety of reasons, but the potential uh, for them to turn into inflationary spending is is significant. And if that happens, right, we we may get stuck in a very significant uh, cycle of increasing deficits, increasing government debt, and increasing debasement of the dollar of the of the money supply. And that's the real that's for me that's the big danger and the danger anytime. Uh, and notice by the way, right. This is, this is like, like curing your hangover by drinking more, okay? It normally doesn't work, all right? And, and in essence, that's what the Fed's done, is to say, well, we'll fix this inflation by going out and just pumping more and more reserves into, into the system, all right? So the last thing I want to mention is, has the Obama administration's recovery plan been a success? And I'm gonna show you just one slide here to think about, it, and then I'll, uh, I'll take some questions. Um, So here's the slide, okay? What are you looking at? Well, this line here was the actual U.S. unemployment rate, right? And here's about the time that the Obama administration proposed the stimulus. What the Obama administration said is, if we don't put a stimulus package together, here's what's going to happen to the unemployment rate over the next, you know, five years. What they also said was, if we pass the stimulus plan, here's what it will look like. So what, for example, in you know, the beginning of 2010, they said, well, we might peak out at about 9% unemployment if we don't pass the stimulus plan. If we do, they said, right, well, we'll be about, you know, a little under 8%. The red dots, of course, are the actual unemployment rate. That's where we actually were. And what you can see pretty clearly, okay, is that from the beginning, our actual unemployment rate has been higher than what the administration said we would have without the recovery plan. And certainly much higher than we were promised with the recovery plan. And that, to me, suggests a couple of things. Obviously, not only one The obvious conclusion is it didn't work, okay? Or at least it didn't work as they thought it would. And you could also conclude, I think reasonably, that it made matters worse. And these, you know, this is Ouija board economics here. But assume for a moment, okay, that their projections were reasonably accurate. Well, how can it be then that the actual rate is higher than what they said would happen if we didn't have a stimulus? I mean, maybe they might say we didn't stimulate enough. Well, then you would think, okay, if we didn't stimulate enough, then maybe we, should, you know, we would be no worse than we were without the recovery, but we're actually worse. We, went over, we popped over 10%. We were in the nines for a long period of time. Right? Why, did, why did, was it worse than without the plan? And one answer to that question might be that the plan itself... Was part of the problem, right? That the stimulus plan itself and the other kinds of things that Bush and then Obama engaged in as responses made matters worse. And that is where I will leave it. Thank you. About 10, 15 minutes to take some questions. Yeah. Alex is shrugging his shoulders at me, so that means yes. At least I'm going to take it as yes. Yeah? Oh, I don't have these- Something like that,
0: yeah.
1: Well, except the, the problem there is, well, two things. One, the the one problem is that uh, that still ha- has all the problems associated with the inflationary potential attached to it. the the, the, the Real spending power, you can't just create spending power out of nothing. That $8,000 per person has to come from somewhere, right? There's always an opportunity cost. So that $8,000 represents a transfer that we, the same people who are getting it, are giving up. That's not creating any new wealth, it's just transferring it, okay? So whether that would have done any good, not clear, because you're giving with one hand and taking with another. But more importantly... There's, I mean, there's a reason why, I mean, that, you know, you're thinking to yourself, that's the logical thing to do. It's so much, it seems so much more effective or cheaper in some sense or less wasteful, right, than what government does. But I think the problem is that government, what we think of as government waste is actually a benefit to politicians. They would much rather, doing that gains politicians nothing, right? What gains them is to be able to target spending programs to marginal voters, right? So you don't want a stimulus package that writes checks. You want a stimulus package that fixes, claims to anyway, fix roads, right, or do these other things so that each member of Congress can hand that out as pork in their district. So politically speaking, it's just unlikely that you're going to see politicians transfer cash. You can ask the same question about, about, you know, about uh, entitlement programs, welfare programs, right? I mean, if you can run those same numbers if you add up all the, men, all the money that the federal government spends on various forms of assistance, food stamps and so on and so forth, and divide that by the number of people it helps. It comes out to something like you know, $60,000, $70,000 a person or a family. And you can say, well, geez, why are we wasting all that money? Why don't we just write a check for a fraction of that? Well, the answer is, is that doesn't benefit the politicians politically. So I think both as a macroeconomic solution, that doesn't work, all right? But politically, you're not, you're not going to see that because you have, any policy you devise to, to, to do anything, but certainly to address a recession, has to get through a political process where self-interested politicians are, are, are driving the bus. Yeah. Well, again, different Austrians would give you different answers to this question, but I think the, the easy, the most sort of answer, the one that everyone would probably mostly agree upon is that the, the government's role is to be, at most, the rule setter and enforcer. Um, that what governments uh, should be doing is making clear uh, who, you know, uh, how property rights are defined, how they're going to be enforced, and who's going to enforce them, okay? And as long as those rules of the game are clear, let people, as it were, play the game without direct intervention from the government, right? We don't... In a housing market, as long as people know what the rules of contract and property are, okay, let people create whatever contracts they want in terms of whether it's mortgages or anything else, okay? Uh, But don't artificially stimulate it. Don't make it artificially expensive. The government's job is to just... enforce those rules, that structure of rules, right, in which the game is played, okay? So, for most Austrians, that means there's not a lot of cases at all where government needs to step in, right? If government does a good job, and this is an interesting question how well it will do, at setting up and enforcing those rules, the the play of the game can largely go on, you know, unintervened in, okay? As long as, again, there's some agency there, government's there, when the rules get broken... To to ascertain you know who, who the victim is and, and what the appropriate remedy, is, okay? Again, Austrians some Austrians would give a bigger role to government, some would give a smaller role, but I think if you're going to cut it down the middle, that would be that would be it. Yeah. How would the have ah, that's that's like like my favorite question on this. Uh, well, look. Um, Whenever you have a central bank... Central banks are monopolies, right? Okay? The, the Fed is the only institution with the legal right to create currency in the United States. By the way, and let's be specific, currency and, and those bank reserves. Other kinds of money are already competitively created. I have a checking account at a small bank in my town. You have a checking account at a different bank. Our banks have created those as, as it is as private debt competitively. So the real issue is over currency and over this ability to engage in open market operations and buy and buy up government debt and create those reserves. So, you know, I could do a long whole lecture on, on this question, but I'll try to give you the short version. If you had a system where banks, where, where without a central bank, right, there's no way for anyone to push onto the market more money than people wish to hold Uh, in in the long run, right? You can try to do it, but eventually, a bank that issues too much money in a competitive system will get punished, right? As people who find themselves with more of, too much of that money will spend it or return it to the bank for some other, you know, for, for let's say, for gold or silver or whatever, right? And in that kind of system, banks that over-issue will pay a price, and if they over-issue, they will quickly have to reduce that amount, okay? And so the argument that people like myself and others have made, in a truly competitive monetary system, you shouldn't see any large excesses or deficiencies in the money supply. With a monopoly, right, like a central bank, one, there's no economic signal there. There's no feedback to it. The only way the Fed knows that it has screwed up the money supply is when macroeconomic variables change. So it sees inflation or it sees interest rates too low, which is always after the fact even then, it doesn't have much incentive to react to it. As I pointed out earlier, central bankers tend to like inflation because it it pleases their political overseers. So monopoly central banks both don't have the signals they need to know when they've got the money supply wrong, and they don't have the incentives to get it right or correct it when they do. And the way in economics, right, we often talk about prices, right? Or at least I like to talk about prices, is that prices are knowledge wrapped in an incentive. Okay, And so when you see a price change, it's both an incentive to change your behavior, but it's also a signal that you need to change your behavior. In a monopoly, any kind of monopoly, prices can't perform that function very well at all. And in the case of the Fed, in essence, there's no signal to it, there, and it has little incentive to change its behavior when it messes up. All right. So I don't know if that answers the question completely enough or not, but the central banks face these... Same kinds of problems that other monopolists or other sort of more broad attempts to centrally plan an industry or an economy would. Um, and, and as a result, it, it makes mistakes. Yeah, in back. This is going back to the few black people. Do you really believe that
0: commercial banks could be
1: allowed to gamble on the river knowing that the FDI is going to fail or not? Yeah, I mean... Th- as a, as a political prediction, would they have been allowed to? Or, or should they be? I mean, yeah, I mean, but right, but remember, these, many of those derivatives wouldn't have existed in the first place, right, if it weren't for all these other things that I've been talking about, right? You wouldn't have had those derivatives if you wouldn't have had the housing boom. You wouldn't have had those derivatives if you wouldn't have had Freddie and Fannie standing by ready to buy up. The more you know, mortgages and create and create mortgage-backed securities with special access to, to federal funding. I just I think that those, again, w- might we have seen some of them? Sure, but the extent to which we saw that whole mortgage-backed security and derivatives market, was all a kind of artificial product of the underlying the underlying problems. So I'm not concerned about getting rid of Glass-Steagall. That all of a sudden commercial banks are going to go wild. A couple historical points to think about too. Um, Germany has had universal banking, that is no distinction between commercial and investment banks, you know, for a long time. They did not suffer the problems that we did in the last 15 years. So that is at least one bit of evidence that suggests that, the, that, that de-separating, that that's the word, right? that allowing commercial banks and investment banks to blend can't, it, it, you know, that suggests that that's not a source of trouble here because we can come up with examples where it wasn't. Uh, one thing I didn't mention in my talk, of course, is our, uh, I live right near the border, so my neighbor's to the north, right? Canada got through this thing with very, very few troubles. And one of the reasons, a couple of reasons, but one reason is they don't have a, really an equivalent of Fanny or Freddie or all this other, they didn't have this housing policy stuff, all these sorts of things. And so they didn't develop, you know, the ninja loans and 2% down and interest only. All these kind of things that were all developed, by the way, by Fannie and Freddie, okay, if, as part of the push to make housing more affordable. So, you know, when we, look, we make these sort of comparisons. But the other historical point I want to make is when Glass-Steagall was passed in the 1930s, the belief at the time was that the, what, what was happening was that the banks were funneling you know, their their, their sort of commercial deposits into all this investment activity, right? And the stock market crashes and, and, and there was, you know, investigations and people said, oh, look what they did. They took the average person's money and gambled it on the stock market and all that sort of things. And so Glass-Steagall resulted. Well, there's been pretty extensive research by economists since then that actually went back and, you know what, looked at the data and found out it just wasn't true, right? The banks banks that were caught up were the worst in the stock market crash were not ones that had heavy commercial deposits. So the evidence for the the original rationale for Glass-Steagall has subsequently not stood up to the evidence. So I'm not really concerned that the repeal of Glass-Steagall was a big issue here. I think, again, the, the, the combination of the Fed's monetary policy and the housing policy put us in a situation, put banks in a situation where all these crazy assets seem like smart things to do. All the traffic lights are green. They did it, right? And, 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 and yeah, regulators didn't know what to do with them. That's certainly true. But th- that wasn't a sort of market failure, right? That whole development of those assets was an artificial phenomenon coming out of the, the, the boom process. Yeah? Uh, what do you Should have been <sighs> all right, well... Here's where I get myself in trouble with some of my colleagues. At least in the fall of 2008, all right, I think what the Fed should have done should have been uh, ready to stand by to provide liquidity to healthy banks, okay? And it did some of that, all right? There are other Austrian school economists who would say the Fed should have done nothing, okay? But I think the Fed... Given the world of central banking, central banks have a responsibility and, and have a historically established policy, that's what you do in, in the case of a crisis. The Fed, however, did not, though it did some of that, mostly channeled funds into unhealthy banks by trying to buy the toxic stuff off their balance sheets. That was a, that was a mistake, okay? The Fed also went way beyond just providing liquidity of making it available to good banks, by all these other things that it did. And then, you know, as we go later, we get into QE1 and QE2 and all these sorts of things, which are just way beyond anything the Fed should have done. I think if, again, and I don't want to steal too much of Bob's thunder, but, you know, for me, if the Fed had done that and only that, okay, and people hadn't panicked and thought that the way you solved this problem was by spending trillions of dollars on various stimulus budget type stuff. Um, I, again, you can't prove a counterfactual, but I suspect we would have had a reasonably severe but short recession that we would be much closer to being out of today than we are. But between all of these things that both the Fed and the federal government did, we, 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 we turned what would have been a market correction into an extensive and complex recession. Maybe one more? Sure, one yeah. Time. One more? Yes, ma'am. Is there a way to change federal insurance to sort of prevent this in the future, or is it less than this in some Well yeah, you can start by getting rid of Fannie and Freddie for sure. Okay. That's one thing. I mean, you know, uh, if you if you're thinking in terms of how do we how do we make sure that l- l- let's back up a step. Remember something really important. Banks don't want to make bad loans, right? If you're a banker, the last thing you want to do is make bad loans. So then why do banks systematically make bad loans? Traffic lights are green, right? Maybe one of the things that's happening here is that the signals they're relying on to determine what are good and bad loans are leading them astray. Perhaps regulation requires them to make bad loans. If we think about something like the Community Investment Act and these other sorts of mandates. We end up you know, creating incentives for them to make bad loans. So banks don't want to make, make bad loans. So that's one point. Second point, if we're talking about like deposit insurance and those kind of things, the other bit of history to know here is that U.S. banks historically have been Small and under-diversified because only in the last 20 years or so have we really allowed banks to cross state lines and branch across state lines. So for most of U.S. history, U.S. banks were small and under-diversified and bank failures were a constant problem. That created the perception that we needed to have deposit insurance. right? And that, I'm not, that, that was the wrong solution, but you can understand why people might have thought that. Compared to Canada, right? Canada's never had those restrictions on geography. Canadian banks have always been larger, more diversified, and healthier. It's one of the reasons they did better the last 15 years than US banks did. Anyone know how many Canadian banks failed during the Great Depression? Zero. How many failed in the US? Almost 10,000, right? Why, just what I said before. So it's, I don't think it's about reforming federal deposit insurance, okay? I, mean, I think if you want to talk about how do you make banks safer, okay? I think you got to talk about the regulatory environment in which they operate. Um, Banks don't want to fail. No business wants to fail. Banks don't want to fail. So how do we create an environment in which we can feel pretty confident that banks are making, making high-quality loans? Stop creating incentives for them to make bad loans. Enable them to diversify. Enable them to do the things that, that lower their risks. Okay. Thank you all. You want to set up box?